All right, well, let's get started. Let's have a prayer. We'll jump right into it. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for an opportunity tonight to gather together and teach the word. Let our hearts and minds be open. Lord, let this word of God out of revelation find good ground on us. Give us insight. Give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen, amen. Well, I'm glad to jump right in tonight as we continue on. We've just finished the church age. Uh, Revelation chapters 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And now we jump right into Revelation chapter 4. Let's look at this chart. We finished this up last time with everything that God starts, He always finishes. And this is a critical thought to carry into tonight's lesson because this starting and finishing of God is a critical piece of the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is the finishing. We come to the end of time as we would know it. We go into the millennial kingdom for a thousand years and enter eternity. And God is, uh, you know, Revelation finishes the whole redemptive plan of God and shows us our future in that. So keep in mind as we go through tonight that uh, we're going to see a key word, this word called completion and this word of finishing. Uh, and it's going to set up what's coming in Revelation 4 on through the next several chapters of the book as we finish the redemptive plan of God out here on the earth. But in our chart, we've come to what I believe was the end of the church age where God will bring the church to himself and the church, the body of Christ that has been given a duty on planet earth to witness and to bring about God's glory and power here on the planet, being bold about our faith, that comes to an end. And what we see play out in the book of Revelation is not the work of the church. It is the work of the Lamb of God. The Father God and the Lamb of God are working a work, and we're entering in this time period called the tribulation and to understand what it really is. Let's go straight to the Bible, Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look at one verse tonight. Next week we'll pick up and finish the whole chapter. But tonight we're going to hold on to one verse, do a left-hand turn, go into the book of Daniel. We're going to tie together some prophecies given to Daniel in visions and dreams with the book of Revelation and try to accomplish this thought, what God has started he will finish in the book of Revelation the dreams and visions given to Daniel that were started in that download of prophetic information to Daniel. God is going to finish. So that's where we want to go tonight. We're going to be looking at the beginning of this period of time called tribulation. You may have heard about it. You may have, are we going to go through it? And the word tribulation comes all of these questions. Are we going to be there? Will we suffer the wrath? Who is the Antichrist? What about the mark of the beast? So all of those interesting topics that we talk about in the book of Revelation, uh, many of them show up during this tribulation period. So let's just see what it is. Let's see if we can define the tribulation period, <clears throat> why it's so critical to our understanding of our prophetic future. Let's jump right in, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, John says, and we believe that the after these things, that there's something now leading us into the future. So let's read it. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here 
And I will show you things which must take place after this. So look at those two words, after these things, and then the final part of the verse, the things that will take place after this. What I believe is happening now is we've transitioned out of this time on earth where the church has been working a work for God. We're the body of Christ, as I said, and we are here to, Acts 1, to be witnesses of God's strength and His resurrection power. But what seemingly becomes pretty clear, at least to me in my study, is that now we leave this period of time called the church age. I'll put the chart back up for you to see. We leave a period of time called the church age, and we move into this phrasing of after these things, meaning we're leaving the church age, and now we're coming into a period of time that prophetically will be known as the tribulation period. We're going to define that in depth tonight. What is the tribulation period? What is this period of time that we talk about in the book of Revelation to try to make it as clear as possible? So now, kind of in our study of Revelation, we're coming into this chart, and we're going to spend many weeks, uh, even up to our Christmas break and then into next year, Uh, From chapters 4 all the way into about 18 and 19, we're going to be talking about the tribulation period. And I'm excited sometime next spring we will end with the kingdom age period. But let's do this. Let's look at a few scriptures that just kind of quantify for us what the tribulation period is. And this, you know, on a chart it's easy to say this is what it is. It's a period of time right here between the end of the church age and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So we, we have Jesus finishing the work of the church. God, what God starts, he finishes. We have a beginning of a tribulation period. And then we'll have the end of the tribulation and start the millennial kingdom. And there we have a thousand years as well. So again, everything God starts, God finishes. And so now we're moving into the start of the tribulation. And we're going to really try to define that for you. Let's just look at what some Bible verses say about it. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many, this is Jesus, but when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. So Jesus uh, gives us some insight that there is coming a time that he will call the coming wrath. That's different than persecution. Um, As I've said before, there's a big difference in the wrath of God and the persecution of sinners or saints by sinners. So Jesus alludes to a period of time called the coming wrath, meaning from Jesus' perspective, it's future. So he's walking on the earth, he's talking to religious people, and he says, hey, who warned you to flee it? Meaning it's probably going to be pretty bad. And he refers to this moment as a coming wrath, which we're going to tie into a minute to be that tribulation period. The next verse is, is Revelation 6, verses 16 and 17. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne Verse 16, and from the wrath of the Lamb. And man, when you dig this out, it is powerful because it gives us a lot of insight that this wrath to come Jesus talked about 
is not the devil persecuting Christians. That's going on right now. We don't have to look toward a future period where sinners and evil people will kill God's people. That's happening all around the world right now. Maybe not in America, but around the world. We're seeing a severe violent persecution and death and beheadings against Christians. And even in our own nation now, we're seeing a lot of liberal ideas that are hindering the work of God in churches and really politically, uh, you know, in our culture politically, there's a real push against church many times and what we the church are called to do. But I want you to notice verse 16 again in your Bible because it's, it's, a, it's a real key piece here to understand the tribulation. It calls it, hide from the face of the one that's on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. So we've got to change what we're thinking about Revelation. Many times we're thinking this book is about the devil and what the devil is going to do. And we're scared of the devil. We use the words like Antichrist, the beast, the harlot, the mark of the beast, and the beheadings of all these saints. And so we kind of make it a book about the devil and about what the devil is doing. But the tribulation is about the wrath of the Lamb. The Father God bringing wrath, and we'll see what that really is soon, and then the wrath of the Lamb. And it's not that God and Jesus are ticked at us because Jesus already died for us. It's that God has to finish something. Uh, just like Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The Father is going to finish something here. And what he's going to finish, we'll define that in a moment but it's the wrath of the Lamb. So as we move into this period, we have to think differently maybe than religious thinking has given it to us that Revelation is a book about the devil and all the devil is going to do. And what we're finding is it's about the Lamb, uh, the Lamb of God and His wrath. And then listen to verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. Again, it's not talking about the devil's wrath, but the Father God and the Son of God. And Revelation is the outpouring of their wrath, meaning there's nothing you'll be able to do about it. I know we kind of teach, well, you know, let's go run to the hills. Let's get generators. Let's get land. Uh, let's take care of ourselves and have our, you know, that's kind of the way we think because we're thinking uh, typical revelation is about the devil persecuting us. And if we can get enough guns and enough food, we could hide out for seven years. That's a total misnomer. The book of Revelation isn't about the devil's work. It's about the Lamb of God pouring out wrath, which makes you also kind of balk at the idea that the rapture is to rescue us out because the devil is so big. God doesn't rescue us from the devil. We're put right in the middle of it to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. The entire rest of the book of Revelation is about what God and the Son are going to be doing in their wrath. So that's a good thought for you to ponder when you discuss this issue about the tribulation period. We're making it more about what the devil's doing than about what really biblically is going on. Revelation 7, verse 14. Then he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. He sees a vision of dead souls that have been beheaded and they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And he says, well, these are those that died in the great tribulation. Now we see where the term tribulation comes from. Jesus referred to it as the coming wrath. 
Uh, it is the wrath of the Lamb. It is the wrath of the one that sits on the throne. And we see that uh, now that wrath of the Lamb and that coming wrath is defined for us as the great tribulation. And throughout the Bible, we'll see many different names given to this. The great tribulation, the day of Jacob's trouble, the great day of God's wrath, all defining this period of time called the tribulation. We're going to see how long is that period of time, how long does it last. Let's look at one more verse, Revelation 15, verse 1. And I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues. And then, you know, underline this in your scriptures. I saw those angels which would bring about, and then this phrase, God's wrath to completion. There's that, what I said a moment ago, we're working toward finishing something here. And God's going to finish it. So... The, the great day of wrath, the tribulation, the wrath that is to come, the wrath of the Lamb, there, and we call that the great tribulation, that will come to an end. So if it, if it comes to an end, it must have a start time. So if there's an end and God says there's coming an end, there will always be a beginning, and that's what we want to talk about tonight. When and where and how does this tribulation begin? Are we already in it now? There's many that believe that we've already went through it, that we're, we've already, you know, Revelation is a historical book. It's not even for the future. And there's people that believe that, and that's okay. I'm much more inclined to believe that Revelation is about a future event. Uh, we're living in the church age now, but there's the prophetic future that is to come. But let's land on this thing called the tribulation. Let's define it. Let's see if there is an end to that wrath. How, how, where is the beginning and how long would it last? Uh, and we'll kind of teach that. But let me just give you the definition. So if you'll look up on the screen in your worksheet, here's my definition of the tribulation. It's a period of seven years, biblically referred to as the day of the Lord, the wrath of God, or the tribulation. To bring about the decree given to Daniel. Now here's where it gets critical. To bring about the decree given to Daniel for God's holy people in his holy city. So what I want to teach you tonight is that the tribulation period is not about the church. And we always want to ask those questions. Well, are, are we going to go through it? And I think there's just a misunderstanding of what it is. I mean, if I'm going to go through it, I would like to know what it is to see if I am going to be there. And everything I find in studying is that the church is not going to be there because it's not about us. We've made it about us, but it's not about us. It's about something totally separate than us as the body of Christ on the earth. And so I want to look at that. So to define this tribulation period better, meaning how long will it be and... You know, it's often said it's seven years long, and where do we get that from, and how do we understand that, and how is the tribulation seven years long? Maybe you've studied prophecy. There'll be three and a half good years and three and a half bad years, and there's seven years. Well, where does that come from? Why do we believe that? And so I want to start there to teach that tonight of this period of seven years. And now what we will do in the future is 
we will look at the details of this seven years. So right now we're just going to define it and talk about what it is. But in the future, we will go chapter 6 on and we will just look at every bit of detail about that seven years. So what's going to be going on? The questions that this uh, you know, embarks in our soul to ask. But I want to look at it tonight just to define why it's seven years and what's going to be happening. So to do that, take a left-hand turn in your Bible to the book of Daniel chapter 8. Or Daniel chapter 2. We'll look at chapter 8 later. But Daniel chapter 2. Now, for the sake of reading uh, the whole chapter, and I would encourage you, I'm going to give you three chapters tonight, well, basically four, that will be critical for your homework and in your own reading. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 9. Those four chapters are critical to understand this tribulation period and what we're talking about. And is it over? As some teach that it's already passed, it's done, and and so the book of Daniel is going to give us insight into that. Again, for your reading this week, you got seven days till our next class. So Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 9, all are going to tell a story. Now, you know, the book of Daniel's kind of uh, got some easy parts. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But there's also a whole core element of Daniel that is futuristic. God is downloading to Daniel the future. Now, the funny thing about this is that what God is going to download to Daniel thousands of years in the past is going to be the very launching pad of the book of Revelation. So they, they go together hand in hand. Uh, I, my personal belief, it's kind of hard to even study Revelation and leave Daniel out. So... You know, what I've been teaching it, God starts and he finishes. He's a beginning and end. Let's go to Daniel to the beginning of this thought of the tribulation period. Because it doesn't begin in the book of Revelation. That's where it's going to end. So the tribulation period doesn't, you know, begin in Revelation 6. That's where it's going to play out and end. We have to go way back to the beginning point. And let's see if we can dig out of Scripture, and it will take some digging. I'll do my best to do it tonight and make it clear. But Daniel chapter 2. Now, in Daniel 2, something interesting happens. There's a king called Nebuchadnezzar, and he has a dream. And in this dream, he, he has a dream of a statue, and the statue is gold and bronze and clay and, and all of these different varieties of metals and it so troubles the king that when the king wakes up he says to his council he says go get the magicians the sorcerers the astrologers and bring them to me and I need them to tell me what I've dreamed I want them to interpret my dream so the, the council of the king goes out and gets all the magicians and the astrologers and the soothsayers and the sorcerers and he puts them all in a room and he says, all right, fellas, here's the, here's the day. The duty of our day is I need you to interpret my dream. Well, of course, they all say, absolutely, king. They're probably vying for who's going to be able to do it the best. They say, absolutely, king, tell us the dream. And if you'll tell us the dream, we'll interpret it. And the king says, no, it's not going to be that way. 
I'm not going to tell you my dream. You're going to tell me my dream. And then not only tell me my dream, you will tell me what it means. And then the soothsayers and magicians are like, no, that's crazy. There's nobody alive that can do that. It's impossible. And the king says to those, you're just playing a game with me. If you can't tell me what I've dreamed, I'm going to kill you all. And so they all kind of gather together like, this is unfair. Nobody can do this. And so the king, in a fit of rage, decides, well, I'm just going to kill all of you. And so he issues an edict to go kill all the soothsayers and the sorcerers and the magicians and the astrologers. We're going to kill them all. Well, in that group of people is Daniel. And Daniel's going to be one of them that gets killed. And so when they show up to arrest Daniel, he's like, hey, man, what's going on? And they go, well, you're going to be killed. And he said, killed for what? And they said, well, because you're part of the astrologers and all of that, and the king uh, has nobody to interpret his dream. And so Daniel says, well, hang on a minute. Give me some time. Let me go talk to my God and see if my God can download the secret. And so Daniel goes back. He gets his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pray, and they're like, God, man, download the secret. So what does God do? God downloads the secret. He downloads the secret of the king's dream. And so Daniel appears back in front of the king and says, O king, there's not one person that could ever tell you what you have dreamed. But there is a God in heaven that could tell you what you dreamed. And I'm here representing him and I'm about to tell you. And so Daniel, in a very prophetic way, which is... I want you to understand something about God is God is not a keeper of secrets only. He's a revealer. So what's about to happen now is that God is going to reveal the future to Daniel. Here's the strange thing. That future that he reveals to Daniel in the beginning of Daniel 2 is going to finish in Revelation chapter 6. God is going to finish this dream and this vision. So we have a long period of time to finish it from start to finish. But let's look at the start of it. Verse 31 of Daniel 2. Daniel's standing in front of the king, and this is what he says. You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold and its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its partly of iron and partly of clay. And you watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. So now he tells him the dream. Here's what you've dreamed. You've had a dream of this beautiful statue, heads of gold, breastplate, feet of clay and iron. And he said, now, verse 36, I'm going to tell you what it means. So I'm going to interpret it for you now. This is the dream, verse 36. And now I'll tell you the interpretation. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You, watch now, you are this head of gold. So now what Daniel is doing is connecting this vision of this statue to the king of Babylon. So at the top of the head of the statue now represents the king of Babylon. 
But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks it into pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, the kingdom will break into pieces and crush all the others. Then, whereas you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom will be divided. Yet the strength of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. Verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven, I love this, will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break into pieces and consume all the other kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Verse 45, this is where it gets brilliant. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke into pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. I love this, man. Write this, highlight it in your scriptures. This is what he says. This dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. In other words, Daniel lays out for us a critical piece of God is that when God downloads truth, it's certain. And the interpretation of that truth is sure. And so what has happened in a moment time is the God of heaven, the God that began time, the God that will end time, has given us insight into the future. God himself has given us insight to the future. You know, it's kind of weird that we could see the future, but not God. You remember the teaching that he's eternal. He's looking over time. So God, to Nebuchadnezzar, gives him a dream. Daniel interprets the dream, and he says, here's what this dream is about. It's about four kingdoms that will come in the future upon the earth. And these kingdoms will rule mankind. These kingdoms will dominate God's people these kingdoms will infect the entire world all the way down until something happens. And what was the thing that would happen? There will come a final kingdom that will overthrow them all. The final kingdom will not have an end. It will be everlasting. And it will go on and on and on. And God will finally rule through his kingdom. So I want you to look up at the screen because I'm going to show you a, a picture of Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Here's the image of gold. There is the statue and, you know, I mean, this is an artist's rendering of that. And then there's the, the stone that comes down and crushes the feet. And this is the vision he had and the king was very troubled. So Daniel steps in and interprets it. And here's what he says. That head of gold represents you, king. It is your kingdom. It is the kingdom of the Babylons. Uh, the Babylonian Empire, and that started in 605 B.C. and ran through 539. But then he tells the king, hey, after you's coming someone inferior to you, but they're going to overthrow you. Their kingdom's going to take your kingdom over, and that next kingdom to come in was Medo-Persia. So if we, you know, we're not just, what we're reading here in Daniel was future, but in, you know, 2020... I can look backward and go, well, it's clear now because I can see history. So what Daniel is prophesying through revelation to him was prophetic. 
To you and I, we look back and go, oh, that's history. So really, let's just ask this question. Is God big enough to where the prophetic future downloaded to Daniel becomes our certain past? Now, if we could determine that, that the prophetic future of Daniel became our certain past, it ought to tell you something, at least about the Bible, that the Bible is supernatural. It's not just a book of... Uh, you know, fables and stories and imagery. It is the mind of God, the will of God, the kingdom of God, and the future of God downloaded to us as humans to live in this time frame as we move towards something. And what is that something we're moving toward? As he goes through these kingdoms, he said, there'll come a third kingdom. And the third kingdom will overrun the second kingdom. And looking back historically, we ask, well, what were the kingdoms? What was the kingdom that overran the Babylonian Empire? It was Medo-Persia. What was the kingdom that overcame Medo-Persia? It was the Greek, the Greek Empire, uh, the ruling kings of that day. But then he said this, there'll come a fourth kingdom. And what was the fourth kingdom? If you, if you look back through history, what was the kingdom that overthrew uh, the Grecian Empire? And it was the Roman Empire. Probably the one we would be most familiar with that ruled and reigned for a long time, nearly uh, you know, 600 years, the Roman Empire governed the world. The Roman Empire is the kingdom that was uh, ruling the day when Jesus was born. The Roman Empire was ruling the day during Jesus' ministry. It's why you read about Caesar and Pontius Pilate and all these governing officials of the Roman Empire. Uh, the story when the Roman centurion comes to Jesus. Um, this Roman Empire, though not established in Daniel's time, was being prophesied by God through Daniel that this period of time would come. And again, like I say to Daniel, it's future. He doesn't know the Roman Empire and the Greeks and all of that. But looking back through time, we simply ask, what kingdom overthrew Babylon? Because Daniel's very clear there. You, O king, are the head of gold. So Daniel, Daniel gives us the starting point. The starting point is the head of gold, Babylon. Well, what kingdom through that? Medo-Persia. Well, what beat them? Greece. Well, what beat them? The Roman Empire. But then Daniel takes it a step further and says, however, out of that kingdom, it will be divided into many kingdoms, smaller kingdoms that will come out of it. Lesser in power, but still very much, you know, clay and iron mixed together, broken up all over the planet. And that's where we are today. We are living in the middle of Daniel's prophetic promise, that future, which is crazy that God gave Daniel secrets to the future and you and I are living in the secrets of the future. We're living in this period of time called the divided kingdom where all over planet earth, kings and princes and governments rule and reign over the people of the earth and wars are fought and rumors of wars and battles and we're in this divided kingdom. There's not one group that rules the whole earth. Uh, we try through the United Nations, but that's not even a kingdom. It's a, it's a conglomerate of nations that come together. So just looking back, we could at least surmise this, that the Bible is not just a book for devotion. It is the mind of God downloaded to humans 
who live in this time-oriented environment that God established. And we're living in the middle of it. We can see historically it's already happened. And right now we're living in the divided kingdom. Now here's the thought. Daniel that prophesied this thousands of years ago and downloaded this secret of time to us, wrote it down in scripture for us, God did. And we're in the divided kingdom. We, we get this thought a lot. Do you think we're close I hear that a lot. Hey, looking at what's going on in our world, do you think the return of Jesus is close? Do you think we're almost to the end? Well, I don't know how close to the end we are, but just look at the picture one more time and just ask yourself, which part of Daniel's statue are we living in? And we're living in the toad side of the kingdom. We're at the very bottom. We're at the very end of the story. Your generation, my generation right now, we are living in this divided kingdom. We are part of the ten toes at the very bottom. That's how close we are. There's no other kingdom that's going to come. There's nothing else that's going to happen globally. We are living in the divided kingdom. And the next thing that happens, this is the book of Revelation, because now here comes the future. The next thing that Daniel prophesied was this, that there would come a king and another kingdom who would crush all others. That's that rock coming down. Christ the rock that would crush all others and establish his kingdom forever and his kingdom would rule and reign forever. There would be no end to his kingdom, which is mind-blowing. It will be the first thing that God establishes that has no end. God's kingdom will rule and reign in the hearts of mankind and over this reality to it. It is, And to that kingdom there is no end. There's no finality to it. It runs eternal. And so just to excite your heart, look at the, uh, you know, look at the screens again. Look at the image again. And just ask yourself, how close are we to this coming kingdom of Christ? Come on, that's awesome stuff. This eternal kingdom. Don't lose heart yet. Don't look around and say, oh man, things are getting worse and worse and worse. I feel so hopeless. I don't know. There's so much war. There's so much confusion. There's so much chaos. I feel like we're never going to make it. I feel like humanity's getting terrible. We're not getting better. I say, just hold on. Look how close you are. We're right at the return of Jesus Christ. We're right at the return of his kingdom. So here's a thought. If the book of Revelation is historical only, it's already been completed, then where is Christ's kingdom? Why is he not ruling and reigning from planet earth? Why is Jesus not on a throne in Jerusalem right now? Because this is what the book of Revelation will teach me. Why? Because the book of Revelation is going to deal with this period of time between the divided kingdom and Christ's kingdom that's coming. So this is what we need to talk about now. Let's talk about this period of time we're living in in the divided kingdom and this coming kingdom of Christ so that it makes sense. If you want to continue on with the study, and this is what I asked you to read a moment ago, uh, you can continue on uh, reading Daniel 7. I'll just encourage you to do it in your own time, but when you read Daniel 7, if you'll notice again our chart... Daniel has a vision himself. And in his own vision, he sees a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a, like a beast, a dragon. He sees these faces, and in that, the interpretation is the same. Babylon, Medo-Persia, 
Rome, and Greece. And so you can read chapter 7, and just like Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, Daniel has a vision of the same thing, this prophetic future that is to come. So once we kind of get into the book of Daniel, we don't just get Daniel in the lion den story, Shadrach, Meshach, in the, in the fiery furnace. We're also getting this heavenly uh, deposit of our future given to Daniel. Also, one more you can notice on the screen as well is in Daniel chapter 8. And you can read it, and I would encourage you, read, read both of them very slow, very methodical. Download it into your heart and read Daniel 8 in your own time. And in Daniel 8, he sees another vision, and he sees a goat with a horn and a ram. And again, he lays it out that these are kingdoms that are to come. So the one thing we can know about these visions and these dreams is that God overall is giving us a, a prophetic shot to the future of these kingdoms that shall rule and reign. Well, you could imagine if you're getting that kind of heavenly download consistently, you're seeing goats and rams and you're seeing lions and leopards and all of these images and these statues, you can imagine to your brain that in your brain it would just throw you for a loop and you would start asking, oh God, when is all this going to happen? When is all this going to come around? And what is this? How would we define this? How would we define this moment where we're talking about the kings of the world that are going to come and going to rule and reign? How do we define this moment? What do we call it? Uh, you know, how we, right now we call it Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But So let's look at Luke chapter 21 in verse 24, Luke is going to define what would we call this period of time where all of these kingdoms that are not Jewish by any means, and remember the three groups of people, the holy nation, the church, the holy nation, God's people, the Jews, and then all the others, the Gentiles. So all of these kingdoms of the Gentiles that are going to rule and reign over the earth, what could we call that? What could we call this domination of all these other political regimes and all of these other governments that will rule over God's people, that will dominate the world? Luke 21 tells us, verse 24, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem, that's the city of God, Jerusalem will be, and this phrase is critical, trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles, and then this last phrase, be fulfilled. So Luke is going to define this for us, that this period of time where these nations govern the world and overthrow God's people and take God's people and God's city into captivity that this period of time will be called the time of the Gentiles. And the last phrase was, be fulfilled. In other words, there'll be an end to it. There'll be a starting point, and there will be an end point. Now, what happens at the end point? Go back to that, uh, that statue. Go back to the image of the original statue, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What happens at the end when that rock comes? Well, that rock brings an end to the time of the Gentiles. So when we see that rock come down, and that rock is Christ, he sets his kingdom up, 
It will bring an end to all other political regimes. He will be king of kings. He will be lord of lords. He will rule and govern over the nations and the hearts of the earth and over humans. So this period of time from Nebuchadnezzar's moment of uh, the time of the Gentiles all the way to the coming of Jesus Christ, this period of time is called the time of the Gentiles. Well, it would be nice to figure out how long does this last? I mean, we can definitely look back to a starting point, but remember, everything God starts, he finishes. So let's just look at a few scriptures. If you'll look at your worksheet, I want to give you um, what the time of the Gentiles is in a brief definition. And here it is. It's a period of time of Gentile lordship where these nations rule the world over the nation of Israel, over the holy city, and over the people. So the time of the Gentiles are other kingdoms than Jesus ruling over God's people, the Jews, over his holy city, Jerusalem, and over the nation of Israel. And it all began with the conquering of Israel by Babylon until the time of Christ's coming, his second coming and setting up his kingdom. So that's the time of the Gentiles, and there's coming an end to it, and we'll look at that in the future. Let's ask this question. Here's the question. What amount of time would be needed to complete Daniel's prophecy from the time of the Gentiles to the end? Is it just some random open time frame? Well, Daniel chapter 9, because Daniel himself is in a mode of God, please let me know what to expect about your people. God, let me know that we're not going to be forever destroyed and we're not going to be forever governed by these nations that are going to destroy your people and destroy your city. And he's very troubled and he's spending time in fasting and prayer and he's weeping and he's, God, I've seen all these visions where your people, your city, the Jews, Jerusalem, we're going to be trampled, we're going to be taken over, we're going to be annihilated, we're going to be murdered, we're going to be put in captivity. And his heart is troubled and so an angel shows up and an angel does what, again, is the nature of God. An angel brings in a time frame because isn't that what we humans want to know anyway? Give us the time. We feel a lot better if we know when to start, we know when to end, and how long something will last. We tend to do better with it. So Daniel himself is like, God, could you please just let me know what to expect here? How long will we be going through this? Well, an angel shows up with an answer. If you'll open your Bible to... Uh, Daniel chapter 9 now. So just go with me in your brain of probably Daniel's mind is just spinning a thousand miles an hour trying to answer how in the world will we get through this period of time. And an angel shows up and gives him an answer. Nine, chapter 9 verse 24. Seventy weeks, so there's the answer, We immediately get it right off the bat. Seventy weeks are determined. Now watch how clear this is. For your people, that's Daniel's people, the Jews, the Israelites. For your holy city, that's Jerusalem. And then this phrase, it's flashing on the screen, to finish something. So God says there's going to be 70 weeks. You want to know how long this is going to last? It's going to last 70 weeks. And in that 70 weeks, I'm going to be able to finish something. So God is going to start something and finish something in a 70-week period of time. 
And Daniel's like, okay, man. And then God tells him what he's going to do during that 70 weeks. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring an end to transgression. I'm going to make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness. Come on, this is some good stuff. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So God is working something very specifically. God isn't just ticked off at humans. He's working a plan. And part of that plan is to finish the transgressions of rebellion. And it's going to be for God's people, the Jews, for Jerusalem, the holy city, and for the nation of Israel. And he's going to finish it. Well, you know, if you just read it on the service, it's very confusing. Like, okay, 70 weeks, it, wouldn't that be over by now? I mean, haven't we lived 70 weeks since Daniel? I mean, that's barely just a year and a few months. And, you know, 70 weeks, that's what... Uh, 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 a year and then probably into March of the next year, so we should be through with that. Well, let's kind of see what prophetically was meant by 70 weeks. To understand this of 70 weeks, you got to go to the book of Numbers. If you'll turn in your Bible to the book of Numbers, chapter 14, there is something that is illuminated to us. As I always say, if you ever want to know what something is, just you know, look in the context of Scripture, go back, and usually you can define it. But what would this 70 weeks mean? And, and how does God think about time? Remember what we said, God is always thinking about time differently than me and you. We think in the moment only. And past we're uncertain, and f certain and future is very uncertain. But God is going to think a little differently. Even Peter will tell us this in the book of Peter in the New Testament that a thousand years with me and you is like a day with God, which is strange that, uh, you know, it takes me a thousand years to get on God's 24-hour clock. So that ought to really make you think a little bit. A thousand years is only like a day with God. So let's see what Numbers chapter 14 verse 34 says. According to the number of days... This is you know, God speaking back to the Israelites who've been in rebellion. They've, they went you know, and spied out the land for 40 days, and they came back with a terrible report. Now they're all disgruntled. Here, here is the response. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. There is an a principle that's established on how God is going to deal with his people, the Jews. And one thing God says is, so you rebelled, for, you went for 40 days to go spy the land, you rejected me, and now you're going to pay the penalty of that rejection. And the penalty of that rejection is, for every day you rejected me, I'm going to hold you accountable for a whole year. That doesn't seem very fair, does it? I'm going to reject him for a day. I'm going to pay the price for a year. And God says, you did it for 40 days, so I'm going to make you wander around the desert for 40 years. So it wasn't like God was just ticked at him, like, well, I'm going to you know, just go wander, and he picked a random number. God gave us this sign that a day equals a year. So one day equals one year. The same is true in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is asked by God to lay on his side for 390 days. 
and then to turn and lay on his next side, his right side, for 40 days, for a total of 430 days. But God also tells us in the book of Ezekiel that that 430 days lying on each side representing the nation of Israel's sins to show them prophetically that for 430 years they will be in captivity. So again, the book of Ezekiel clarifies out of the mouth of two, we get the witness that God holds accountable a day is a year, 40 days, 40 years, 430 days, 430 years. Now with that thought, let's go back to Daniel and try to decipher this 70 weeks. Is God talking about literal weeks? Uh, so what, a year and a few months? Or is he talking about something different? Well, I believe he's talking about what he's always said, that a week, which is seven days, so if we have seven days, one week, then that would equate to what? Come on, seven days, seven years. So it would equate to seven years. Now, what God says in that prophecy to Daniel, what that angel downloaded is, Daniel, you want to know how much time here is going to transpire? Seventy weeks. Well, how much is seventy weeks? A week is seven years, so seventy times seven is what? Four hundred and ninety times. Four hundred and ninety years. And I'll just let you study this out. Is it not amazing that Peter's like, how often should I forgive uh, my brother? Should I forgive him seven times? Meaning, I'm going to go way beyond the law here. I think it required three. And he said, I'll do seven. Jesus said, no, nope, 490 times. I'll let you study this out. But I think Jesus was alluding to this. Jesus was alluding to this moment that you and I uh, just have to see things differently on a timetable than God. So back to Daniel, his mind, how long, God? Are we going to be persecuted and overran and taken over and your city destroyed and your people held captive? 490 years, Daniel. So Daniel gets a heavenly download. So let's read it again with that in parenthesis rather than 70 weeks. Let's just read it with 490 years now. And it reads this way. Daniel's questioning how long and the angel says 490 years are determined for your people and your holy city, and then that phrase, it's flashing on the screen, to finish. So God now says, you want me to tell you something, Daniel? Don't be so frustrated here. This is not for eternity. This is not eternal. This Gentile lordship over my people, over my city, over the nation of Israel, it has a time frame. It's 490 years long. Well, that ought to probably make you discouraged because Daniel's not going to live that long. So obviously now Daniel knows that this goes way into the future. He already knows by giving the dream to Nebuchadnezzar that they'll come the next kingdom to overrule. And Daniel may or may not outlive that one. But one thing we do know, Daniel probably knows, I won't outlive them all. And so the frustration arises. But God, don't worry. Don't be frustrated because at the end of 490 years, what happens? Come on, what happens at the end? A new kingdom arises. A kingdom of a king of kings, lord of lords, where he will rule and reign forever. So Daniel has this ray of hope. Let's continue to read in verse 25. Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore and understand, this is the angel talking to Daniel, that from, now watch, this is critical. 
Because you would think, well, when does the 490 years begin, right? There's 490. God, did it start last week? Did it, does it start next month? Because if you could just tell us when it started, we could have hope. We could have great hope here. And so here comes that heavenly download, that secret revealed. Know therefore, Daniel 9, 25, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, and then he gives the until, until there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And what, what is seven? All right, seven is seven years. So now we have 69 weeks out of the 70 so he says basically this. He said, there will be 69 weeks. And in that, from the going forth of the command to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem, all the way until the coming Messiah, out of the 490, there'll be 483 of those. So, man, there comes this heavenly secret that's revealed to Daniel that out of the 490 years, I'm going to tell you the starting point and I'm going to take you from the start all the way to the coming of the Messiah. And that's going to be 483 years, Daniel. I'll just put this up on a chart so you'll see it. Um, let you see what it looks like. Uh, seven weeks is 49 years. And then there's another 62. So a total of 483 years. That's 69 weeks. So out of the 70 weeks, Daniel gets, I'm going to go ahead and tell you about 69 of them. 69 of these weeks, 483 years, and I'm going to tell you where it's going to start, Daniel. I'm going to tell you that it's going to start from a decree to rebuild my city, and it's going to go all the way to the coming of Messiah. And that amount of time, Daniel, is 483 years. So let's just ask ourselves, do we think we could know that? Could we know that starting point? Could we know the point of time uh, where we could know the going forth of the commandment. Can we look? Now, here we have this beauty. We can look back and ask ourselves, is there a historical date that we can chart historically where a decree went out to restore and build Jerusalem? So the answer is, if we study our history, and history is important, we can look back in time and see that. Daniel's looking future. We have the beauty to look to the past. And looking at the past, what was prophetically certain for Daniel is now historically certain for us. And let's look at this passage of Scripture. It's very interesting. Daniel 9.25, I'm going to read it again. He says this, Now know therefore from the going forth, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, and I've got it flashing up there now. I took the 69 weeks for years, 483 years. Now, let's just see if we can determine when did the decree go forth to rebuild the temple. Again, we have the beauty of history, so we do our history studies and we go all the way back into the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7 is going to give us the beginning point of the 483 years because in the book of Ezra, we are given insight to when the decree was issued. The angel prophesied it to Daniel and now Ezra is going to give us the time frame that this decree went forth. So let's go to the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 1. And we'll read verse 1, verse 6, 
and verse 8. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, so now we've got some history. We've got the name of the king that was ruling. He was the king of Persia. So there's that Persian dynasty that Daniel prophesied. Ezra, the son of Sariah, this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, and now it even gets more detailed. I love it. In the seventh year of the king. Now, all we have to ask ourselves is when Ezra went into the land of Israel and he went in to go spy out and see what was going on with Jerusalem, is this the issuing of the decree? Look at Ezra 9 9. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the king of Persia. Now, who was that king? Artaxerxes. He extended his mercy through this king. Watch now. This is here Ezra is letting us know that Artaxerxes was the king that wrote the decree to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Because this is what Ezra says. This king of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah, and then there's that holy city and Jerusalem. So Ezra, in the Old Testament, who was a, you know, a, a wrote it all out for us, gave us the starting point of the beginning of 483 years. It was the year 7 of the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Well, here's what we have to do now. we got to do our history. So hopefully you took some history classes, but if not, there's enough information to dig it out. Let's go dig out Artaxerxes king of Persia, and it's Artaxerxes I. He was the king of Persia who came to rule in 465 B.C. So you remember there was the Babylonian kingdom with Nebuchadnezzar, then the Medes and the Persians would take over, so now we're in this reign of Persia, and the king that's reigning is Artaxerxes I. He came to rule in 465 B.C. Now what did Ezra say? In what year did he issue the decree? Year 7. So in year 7 of Artaxerxes' reign, the decree. So year 7 of Artaxerxes is the beginning point of 483 years. It was prophesied. We have 490 to get to the finish, but 483 until the Messiah. So we found our starting point, Artaxerxes I, in his seventh year, and that comes out to be 457 B.C. He came to power in 465 B.C., Seven years into it, we're at 457 B.C., where he's ruling and he issues this decree. So let's look at this slide. This may help you. In 457 B.C., Artaxerxes issued a decree, and 483 years later from that decree, what's going to happen? Remember? Yes, the the Messiah will, will come. The Messiah will be on the scene 483 years later, Messiah the Prince will come. That's the prophecy to Daniel. So now Daniel's looking to the future. I'm way beyond that. Now this future of Daniel is my past. So now what I get to do is I get to judge it. Was this prophecy real? Can we hold to it? Can we count it? Because if if I can count this 433 years as historical fact, 
then I should be able to look to the next seven to get to 490 and say they too will be fact. They will go from prophetic as Daniel went from prophecy to history. So the book of Revelation will take up the other and go from prophecy to back to an end and a finishing. Well, let's just look at it. 457 B.C., which was the issuing of the decree. 483 years later, where do we come to? We come to 26 A.D. So now we're in the years that Christ supposedly walked on the earth. And now all we got to determine is... Did Jesus show up in 26 AD? Because that's what Daniel prophesied. That's what he said would happen 483 years later. Well, we can do some history and some digging in the Bible. Let's do that. Turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 gives us insight to this period of time. And listen to what it says. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, anybody want to tell me who was it that baptized Jesus? I think it's pretty clear. It's not that we would struggle over that as a Christian reading it. John the Baptist was the person in Mark chap- Matthew chapter 3 who is said to have baptized Jesus where he saw the Spirit come down and remain on him. And he said, well, I was baptizing. Well, now we got to do is go, well, when was John baptizing? If we can figure out when John was baptizing and John baptized Jesus, well, then maybe we could figure out because in this passage of Scripture, John is going to baptize Jesus. When was John baptizing? The 15th year of Tiberius and when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. So let's do our history. Let's look back into history and ask, when was uh, Tiberius Caesar? Because it happened in his 15th year. So let's go back and ask, well, when did Tiberius Caesar begin to rule in history? History will tell us that Tiberius Caesar in 12 A.D., became co-regent with his stepfather Augustus. I think Augustus was sickly, and so um, Tiberius reigned with him for about two years, but that counted as the beginning of his reign, even though he was co-regent, and he took sole rulership of Rome in 14 A.D. But from 12 A.D. until 26 A.D., we have his 15th year starting. It would be the end of his 14th year and moving up into his 15th year. And then it said this, at the same time, Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea. Well, all we have to simply do now is do our research on Pontius Pilate and look through history and ask, when did Pontius Pilate become, when was he established as the governor of Judea? And that is 26 AD. So John the Baptist in 26 AD was baptizing. What did Daniel have prophesied to him that at the end of 483 years, come on, what would happen? The Messiah would come. And so now 483 years later in 26 AD, the Messiah shows up. How do we know? Because we know John the Baptist will baptize Jesus Christ. 
And my belief is that in somewhere around 26 AD, Jesus Christ shows up to be baptized by John in the year that Pontius Pilate is governor, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, at the end of 483 years prophesied by Daniel, the Messiah, the prince who was to come, shows up on the scene. Come on, that is an incredible, uh, not just history, but the power of the Bible, the prophetic insight of the Bible to be true and to be right and to be certain and not just a devotional book, but a book of our future, a book about not just our past and devotions of Jesus, but a book about our future. Now, as exciting as that is, what's the problem now? What is the problem at hand? If we really want to know the problem, yeah, look up. The problem at hand is we've only covered 483 weeks of the 490. And you remember what the prophecy said in Daniel 9. 490 of them have to come to pass before this thing is finished. I'm going to bring it to a completion. I'm going to finish the time of the Gentiles. The rocks will land, the rock will crush the feet, and a new kingdom will be established. How long, God? 490 years, Daniel. That's how many, much time, 490 years. And from the time of Jesus, 483 have transpired. Now, logically would be this. Well, haven't there been more than just seven years since Jesus died or since he was resurrected or baptized haven't we passed the mark of 490 years? If not, then what's the gap? Why is there such a big gap from Jesus' death to his kingdom coming? And I guess, you know, people say, well, his kingdom is here. But he's not ruling from Jerusalem. He's not sitting on a throne. Every king of the world has not bowed down to him. They've all not bowed down to the Lamb of God. So one thing we know about the book of Revelation, it hasn't completed itself yet. It hasn't completed. We're not in the millennial reign of Christ. Lucifer has not been bound and chained, thrown into an abyss for a thousand years. We're not living in total peace for a thousand years. We know, at least historically, looking back, there's never been a period of time since one kingdom has ruled the whole earth and that kingdom has been God and that the devil has been chained and locked away in an abyss. Never has there been that time. So it lends us to end with this thinking. So where is the next seven years? When will it happen? When will it come to pass? It leaves a big gap for us. When will this last week happen? When will this final seven years come about? Obviously, I think we could read the book of Revelation and logically conclude that it's not happened yet. But here's what he said. From the issuing of decree, 483 years to the crucifixion of Jesus when Messiah is cut off. 483 years shall transpire. And the beauty of that is we have this gap between 483 and these other missing seven years, these years to be fulfilled, these years that are going to be known as, as a tribulation period, the wrath of God when he completes his wrath, when he finishes his work on iniquity and transgression. The question becomes, well, what's going on in this gap? Well, what's going on in this gap has been chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, the church age has been going on. From the death of Jesus Christ, Jesus has started the church and he's left us here to do a work, to witness, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth. 
And from 483 to 490, there's been this period of time where the church has been working and moving. We haven't seen the beginning of the seven years to finish yet. This is what the entirety of the rest of Revelation is about. It's the fulfillment of this final seven years. Just as certain as the 483 were, just as certain this last seven will be. And the last seven that will be are given to us from a heavenly revelation to John on the Isle of Patmos. This last seven years is known as the tribulation period. This last seven years is the day of God's wrath. This last seven years is known as the wrath of the Lamb, the great day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, where in this last seven years there will be a finishing of the iniquity of sin and those that have come against Jerusalem and those that have come against Israel and Christ will come and redeem the Jew and redeem the nation Israel and redeem those that have believed in him. Come on, and he will rule and reign. Well, this is probably the most talked about uh, passage of our future, these seven years. What's going to happen? The Antichrist, the mark of the beast, uh, all of the, the, the wars and the famines and the diseases and the Islands breaking apart and the mountains going away and the sea turning to blood. Well, that's these last seven years to come. And that last seven years is known as the tribulation period where God is going to finish it. Daniel chapter 8. Let's end with this thought. Daniel chapter 8, verse 19. Daniel 8, verse 19. And then he said, I'm here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen, I love this, what you have seen pertains to the end of time. God so rules over time that thousands of years ago he spoke to Daniel. And he said, Daniel, I'm going to give you some information about the future of the kingdoms that will come. And those kingdoms that will come, it's going to speak all the way to the end of time. And I'm going to tell you how long that time will be. 490 years, Daniel. 483 of them we can mark off. But because I don't want to see any perish, because I don't want to see any soul loss, because I don't want to see any person miss out on my love for them and my redemption for them, I'm going to give a period of time where my people, my body, my church will bring about the gospel message of hope that you don't have to suffer the wrath of the Lamb. You don't have to go through the wrath of God. You can be delivered. It's not appointed for those of us who believe in Jesus to go through the wrath. I mean, it's very clear in Scripture that those of us who believe in Jesus don't go through the wrath of God. Again, this is not the wrath of the devil against Christians. This is the wrath of God poured out against transgression and the rebellion of his people and the rebellion of those that have rejected him and upon sin and upon the devil's kingdom. That's what the tribulation is about. It's a seven-year period of time. And we're in the middle of the church age right now. That church age is that the feet and toes of that statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And God is appealing unto us, will you go? Will you go into the world? Will you tell people about me? Will you win the loss? Will you tell them there's hope? Will you tell them they don't have to go through the wrath? They can, they can be spared from it. They can be rescued from it. How? By simply believing in Jesus. By simply believing in the Lamb of God. By simply putting their faith in His work on the cross so they can, uh, they can, uh, they can miss out on His work and His wrath. 
You either get the cross or you get the wrath. There's no option. If you reject the cross, the wrath of the Lamb is to come. If you reject the blood of the Lamb on the cross, you get the wrath of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. It doesn't even sound fun. It doesn't preach well. But it's why we have to go out and win the loss. It's why we have to share our faith. Because if you reject the blood of the Lamb on the cross, you get the wrath of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. The one that brings His blood to heal all through Revelation. The blood that's going to come to destroy. The oceans turn to blood. The animals die off. I mean, it's just crazy as we get through it and read it. Well, that is the wrath of the Lamb. And that... It's why the tribulation period is seven years. The tribulation period is Daniel's 70th week. The tribulation period is that week, uh, that year 484 to 490, where God is fulfilling His covenant promises, where God is bringing about the wrath of those that have rejected Him. And so that's where we get this period of time that we saw in the chart at the beginning. That period of time, that's why it's seven years long. That's why it's totally different than just being persecuted. It is the wrath of the Lamb that is poured out on the tribulation. And that's what we're going to look at in the weeks to come. I'm so excited. Chapter 6 especially begins to show us in detail what will be taking place in this seven-year period of time. I hope that blessed you. I hope it caused your mind to just open up to the beauty of God's Word, the beauty of, of the prophetic Scripture, and where we're going to the future. I love you. I bless you. I pray this finds good ground in your heart. I pray that it causes your mind to expand to the vastness of God's wisdom. And I bless you as you go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message. 